What is an evangelical? And would you call yourself one? No matter how you would answer those two questions, we would all acknowledge that they're important questions that many seem to be asking afresh right now. In our interview today, I'm talking with Mike Reeves, president and professor of theology at Union School of Theology in the UK, and the author of Gospel People, A Call for Evangelical Integrity from Crossway. Reeves and I discuss the term evangelical and the different ways it's often used in our culture today. His thoughts on how we should respond to the cultural baggage often associated with the term and the crucial theological underpinnings of a truly evangelical worldview. Let's get started. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Absolute pleasure to be with you, Matt. It's good to talk with you again, and I think this morning about a a pretty important topic, this idea of uh, who we are as evangelicals Mm. and um, the value of that term going forward. At least to me, as I look out at the the landscape around us, uh, maybe especially in the U.S., it seems like more and more Christians, including many pastors and and church leaders, are rejecting the label evangelical. Yes. And so I wonder, just to kick us off here, if someone you didn't know, after finding out that you were a Christian, asked you, but are you an evangelical, how would you respond to that question? Well, it, it is a difficult one we need to be sensitive to according to t- people's different situations. So we need to be contextually sensitive. In some places and at some times, the word evangelical has unhelpful or negative or misleading connotations that were I simply to say I'm an evangelical, they'd actually not hear what I'm meaning by that. And and so we need to be careful with the word, but I think at the opposite end of the spectrum, there is a, a danger of those who would call themselves gospel Christians or classically evangelicals to say, well, evangelicalism is so corrupted, we can just ditch that label and come up with something new. And that, that's, I think, my fear today, that tribalism will simply increase as people think let's let's dump this tarnished label that's been appropriated by so many people we don't really agree with and we can just come up with something new and and the issue is that evangelicalism has a biblical and historical pedigree and simply to jettison it and try to come up with something new means I think whatever you come up with that's new could wear thin awfully quickly. And so mm. it could just accelerate the process of tribalization that we're seeing today. That, that's such an interesting comment. Um, that issue of tribalism is, we all are all so aware of that these days. It feels like we're all talking about that increasingly. Mm. Uh, and you write in the book, when we rebrand ourselves every 10 years, the idea that we might represent the historic Catholic faith becomes laughable. And so I, I wonder, elaborate on that idea that is it, are you essentially arguing that by retaining this label, even if it is tarnished in some people's minds, is that actually part of the answer to our tribalism? Is that, is that part of the, the way that we get past this tribalistic moment that we live in? Ultimately, I, I'm not, ultimately and primarily, I'm not interested in the label uh, as such. That 
maybe in certain situations the label evangelical is just too difficult to use and to some extent that's okay i want to be wary of doing that too quickly because i don't think there is another label that sufficiently gets what it means to say we are a people of the gospel first and foremost there's no other label that does that people have tried and tried again and again and it simply hasn't worked but what i'd be most concerned with is seeking to bring those people who whether or not they would self-identify as evangelical want to be people of the gospel let's get a clarity together on what the gospel is and unite there to say yes whether or not evangelical in our situation is is a, a word that's actually going to be helpful let us be a people of the gospel mm. so what does that uniting look like practically if if there isn't a shared label for who we are a shared identity that we can kind of proclaim to the world what does it look like to unite around the gospel then yeah, I think this is something that Paul's letter to the Romans sets out the need for. So Romans 1 to 11, Paul says, well, here's the gospel. And, and if you look in Galatians 1, he's very stern in saying you may not depart from the gospel to another gospel, which is no, no gospel at all. And yet Romans 1 to 11, he sets out the gospel. And I think that's roughly chapters 1 to 4 is... Here is Christ, the completely sufficient saviour, therefore justification by faith alone. Chapters five to eight, the Spirit's essential work of regeneration in our hearts, giving us new birth into Christ. And Romans nine to 11, I think is really answering the question of um, early Romans nine, has God's word failed? So the gospel is well, he sets it up at the beginning of Romans 1. It's the gospel promised through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was made known to be the son of God in power through the spirit. So the gospel is a Trinitarian gospel concerning, made known through the scriptures. It's a scriptural gospel concerning the son. It's a Christ centered gospel made known through the spirit. It's a spirit effective gospel. Uh, we are born again, regenerated through the power of the Spirit. That's the gospel that holds us together, Romans 1 to 11. But then Romans 12 to 16, interestingly, he then goes on to say, now love one another with brotherly affection. Watch out for those who cause division. And he talks about those issues that could divide us. So things we eat, special days, our different opinions on matters like that, and says those things shouldn't divide us. And, and so that's setting out for us what it means to be people of that gospel, that we find our unity in that scriptural, Trinitarian, Christ-centered, spirit-affected gospel, meaning that we can believe other things that are important to us, our particular view of baptism or how the church should be governed. And those things matter, but they're not the gospel. Hmm. And so we can have differences that won't affect our evangelical unity. Now, what that unity then looks like, so this is what your question really was, Matt. What that question looks like is it needn't be an institutional unity. 
So we don't all have to join the same organization. We don't all have to carry the card that says, I belong. Because when Jesus prays for unity, he's not praying that we all sign up to some organization. He's praying that we might have a spiritual unity, that we might be able to love one another as brothers and sisters, knowing we are children of the same father called by one gospel. And so recognizing we actually have some differences here. I don't believe everything every other evangelical thinks. Mm. I'll strongly disagree on some things, and yet I can treat them as brothers and sisters if we share this gospel. And that's such an encouraging word. Uh, And yet at the same time, it does seem like in our you know, social media-fueled culture today where there's so much of this uh, uh, public performance element to our mm. Christianity, uh, it can seem hard to—the the disunity that we see at organizational levels or institutional levels can almost seem to overwhelm any unity that we might— or even dictate the unity or lack of unity that we might experience on a one-to-one basis with the Christian living next door. Yes. Did you, and you get what I'm saying? And, and yeah. do you, how, do you, how do we deal with that reality that we're kind of facing? Well, I, I think that reality is the fallout of not being very clearly people of the gospel rather than people of some issue or denomination or sect or party mm. or, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. And so what very quickly happens is that even people who want to say, I'm a person of the gospel, we very quickly will take something away from the gospel and think that's not so significant or we'll add something to it. And so we can so easily say, look, here's the cultural issue of the moment, whether it's a um, a political issue or a moral issue. And we can put those those other issues that are um, on the agenda or not just those sort of issues. We can put the personalities we respect with their particular little shibboleths, their little ways of doing things. And we can find ourselves just retreating into a little cultural silo where my silo, we all follow the ways to walk and talk, the ways to dress that our three leaders love. Mm. And the guys in that silo, they dress differently. And we we almost just feel that we're talking about different gospels because actually we've centered in on a personality or a cultural political issue rather than uniting ourselves in the gospel. I think it's a first sign of a, the, the tribalism is a first sign of a loss of true gospel centeredness. Yeah, yeah. And I want to get into some of the doctrinal, the core doctrinal commitments that undergird the this identity that you're calling for evangelicals to embrace and maybe recover again. Hmm. But before we, we get into that, I, I do think one, in my experience at least, one tricky part of this whole conversation is that uh, for some people, certainly not all people, but for some, the rejection of this label evangelical is also accompanied by, uh, at times, theological and ethical shifts as well. So we have some people who are retaining these core doctrinal commitments um, but just don't like that label, but others who who kind of are actually moving in terms of what they profess to believe. And I think that dynamic can sometimes maybe muddy the waters in these conversations where we're not always sure what is going on under the surface. H- have you seen that? Do you resonate with that concern? How do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that's been 
one reason why people have said we want to we want to dump evangelicalism mm. because it it becomes far too broad and mushy a label and so it's just not really reflecting who we are anymore but i i think that gets things the wrong way around that you don't define what reformed is by looking at everything in the world that calls itself reformed or or presbyterian or pick your label um similarly but but we've done that with evangelicalism mm. we have looked at everything that calls itself evangelical and then said well i'm not all of that i i'm similar to some of it but not all of it therefore evangelicalism is just too broad for me but the way we need to define evangelicalism is theologically to go what does scripture say about what the gospel is now to be people of the gospel is to be people together of that gospel proclaimed in scripture and someone could be called in the media an evangelical but if they're not actually heralding that gospel then well they're not being evangelical and equally someone who's not known as an evangelical if they are heralding that gospel effectively they are an evangelical whether or not they'd mm. own the label yeah well let's talk about that theology then because I, I think um, that's one of the common critiques that we've heard of evangelicalism uh, through the years is mm. that as a movement if we can call it that it has historically been conspicuously lacking of any kind of theological or doctrinal foundation mm. that, that is, uh, historically speaking, far more shaped by our culture's embrace of things like individualism or capitalism or maybe a focus uh, more recently on the therapeutic than any kind of distinctly theological commitments. Do you think that's a fair critique of evangelicalism historically? No, I don't think it is. Um, I, I, th I hear that a lot. Um, but that strikes me as a very recent American reading of the situation. Hmm. And and quite often, I, I found it interesting in writing this book, I found it interesting reading a lot of American writers, and quite often they'd equate American with evangelical. And as a Brit, I'm thinking, excuse me, where do I fit in? <laughs> I, I think of myself as an evangelical, but I'm not an American. And Is that just a symptom of, of Americans tendency to kind of across the board on many things uh, just think that the world revolves around us i wouldn't put it as a, a, a sort of national selfishness quite just simply that the scene is so big that mm. you almost don't need to look beyond your own borders to see you know there's quite enough to take there's in there's a lot going on but yeah. but but realistically um it's just not like that in other parts of the world so the way that evangelicalism in the US is, is so tightly bound up with the political uh, and the racial as well, the, the way those are so tightly bound up just is not true of other parts of the world. And so those American concerns don't translate outside of America neatly. Sometimes they will mm. a little bit, but non-American evangelicals just aren't a political or racial block. And so those kind of critiques of um, individualism, capitalism simply don't apply. And the reality is that the US is not actually the global heartland of evangelicalism. It's South Korea, Kenya, Nigeria, places like that, where actually there are more evangelicals than more evangelicals in Brazil. 
and and therefore we, we mustn't allow global evangelicals or global evangelicalism simply to have to dance to the tune of a recent American anomaly. Mm. So help us then, as an example, understand this global phenomenon a little bit better. Mm. Um, maybe if you could explain what does evangelical mean in the UK context? What would be the the associations that someone might have on the street when they hear you say, yes, I'm an evangelical? I, I think the key difference um, between America and almost everywhere else is how deeply embedded in the culture evangelicalism is in the States. And therefore, and this is a lot of the discomfort that people have, is the sense that there are unregenerate people who who don't savingly know Jesus, hmm. love and trust him, who would call themselves evangelical, who might be ignorant of key gospel doctrines and yet call themselves evangelical. And that's because in past generations, evangelicalism embedded in, in embedded itself quite deeply in the culture in America. Whereas you see, uh, whether it be Europe, Africa, Asia, uh, in those places, evangelicalism has just not got into the mainstream of the culture. It's been persecuted, isolated, and therefore, if an American were to see those evangelical scenes, there might be some cultural differences, but I, I think what they would tend to be surprised by is the simple orthodoxy mm. of those evangelicals, the, the, the kind of things that an American evangelical dreads about evangelicalism um, are rarer in those contexts. Yeah, yeah, that's so helpful. And that's one of the, I guess, the, the catch-22 of cultural dominance, that the dominance that evangelicalism has experienced in the U.S. over the last hundred right. years is that it can lead to these kinds of nominal uh, expressions of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, in your book, you highlight three doctrinal heads out of which flow all of the, the key theological distinctives that you would see as important for uh, historic evangelicalism. Uh, you've already kind of hit on these, but I wonder if you could do, do so again. What are those three heads? Yeah, so I, I see the three heads. And what I've tried to do is argue it through how Paul repeatedly speaks of the gospel, whether that's in Romans 1, like we looked at earlier, or in his other letters. I, I've tried to see what are the characteristics of the gospel as Paul talks about it. And again and again, you see in his letters these key things. It's a Trinitarian gospel. It's a biblical gospel. It's a Christ-centered gospel. It's a spirit-affected gospel. So it's it's a gospel that's it's God-centered. It's concerned with the triune God and the work of the triune God. Mm. So the revelation of the Father, it's a scriptural gospel. The redemption of the Son, it's... Uh, it's concerning his redemption. It's not just an empowerment of us, but we need a savior, which is Jesus Christ, and the regeneration of the spirit. And by regeneration, I think the, the gospel really, there are two facets to that, that the spirit not only gives us a new birth, that's how we normally talk about regeneration, but the spirit also ongoingly renews us, bringing us into the likeness of Christ. 
So the spirit regenerates us in that double sense, the initial and ongoing sense. And I think we've got to have all that in mind when we're thinking about what are the essentials of the gospel. The triune God with the Father's work of revelation, the sons of redemption, the spirits of regeneration. And I think it's so helpful how you unpack that structure that you see there, because there are so many other theological and ethical and spiritual um, elements that kind of flow from those those three core, um, you know, fountainheads. And, and just today in, in our conversation, I think we can only explore one of those, but I think it is, you start with this one, and I think it's got a certain uh, preeminence or foundation. I think you're absolutely right. That, that That's a theological description, but it actually has all sorts of essential practical outworkings that because we believe in the need for a generation, that's why we believe in the importance of holiness. Mm. That's why evangelicals are passionate about evangelism and missions. So some of those things that people have talked about classically as these are evangelical concerns, yeah. they're right, but I've wanted to embed them theologically yeah. to see those classic evangelical concerns, they're not random. They flow out of those central gospel concerns. Yeah. And and those central gospel concerns also are, it's not just um, pernickety theologians who like doctrines. That, to have a gospel concern means that if I believe in the Spirit's regeneration, I don't believe in dead orthodoxy. It, it's not, to be evangelical is not simply to tick a certain confessional box. Yeah, yeah. It, it means that my heart renewed, I once was lost, but now I'm found, I will sing with delight in my God. My desires are different. It's not just orthodoxy, it's orthocardia. It's a right heart, a worshipping heart. That's mm. implied in evangelicalism. Mm, yeah. So let's talk about one of those heads then in particular, the the supremacy of Scripture is the language that you use. And so evangelicals, well known, we follow in the footsteps of the Protestant reformers and affirm the supreme authority of Scripture over our lives and our, our thinking about God. And yet one common critique that we've heard over the last few decades is that this doctrine of sola scriptura in practice has led to this interpretive free-for-all when it comes to what we think Scripture actually says. And, and I think even some would go further and say that free-for-all is at the root of evangelicalism's shallow theology and even our disunity. We don't have a core, uh, some, some of these applications of these basic uh, fountainheads of doctrine. We don't have these, this unity because we all interpret the Bible however we see fit, and there's no authority there. One of the related observations that many will make about evangelicals is that we are often not very well rooted in our own history. Hmm. We don't we don't appreciate the value of church history like other uh, Christian traditions like Catholicism or uh, even Anglicanism might. And so, uh, what do you make of that? Is that a valid critique that maybe contributes to this like me and my Bible mentality that can sometimes be at play? Yes, I think that is true. And what you see in that me and my Bible historically theologically ignorant evangelicalism is very different to the reformers evangelicalism. So you see again and again, reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin are saying, 
our agreement with the ancient church is closer than that of the Roman Catholic churches. Mm. And we seek not to change, to, to bring in something new, but to retrieve the orthodoxy of the ancient church. So by reformation, they meant this is retrieval of orthodoxy, reforming ourselves according to old orthodoxy. So they're not seeking to do something new. But I think part of the evangelical mindset that has become historically and theologically suspicious has been, we want to be people of the Bible. Therefore, I don't want to listen to what some egghead theologian tells me. I just want to read my Bible. Right, right. And the issue is that God gives his Bible, his word, to his church as a whole. So we, we see this in Paul's letters, that um, these are letters to be read out to the whole church. And therefore, we read scripture, while we do it individually as well, we're seeking to do so as the church, which means that we want to have a unity with our brothers and sisters, both dead and alive. Mm. And so it's actually not an evangelical thing to say, I don't care what any other Christian thinks. Because while it is true that scripture is supreme over the thoughts of all other people, it is helpful to hear what wise Christians have said about scripture. And some of those, in fact, most of those wise Christians are dead. And therefore, it's good to read some historical theology and to make sure we're in line with the great tradition of the church, just as we we don't want to be falling out with um, other parts of the church today. We're prepared to because scripture is supreme, but it, it grieves us to do so. Mm. Yeah, what does that look like practically for you as you, you're a historian, you teach at a, you're the president of a, a, a seminary, you teach... Uh, history and theology, but what does it look like for as you think about and try to balance that uh, ultimate submission to Scripture's authority, and and ultimately that means you know how you perceive what you perceive it to be saying, um, and yet also wanting to allow the witness of church history, the witness of creeds and confessions and catechisms and uh, other figures in the church to speak into how you are interpreting the Bible. H- how do you hold that in balance? Well, I. In my seminary, I teach heresy, but I don't (laughs) preach it. What I mean by that is I want my students to know what Arianism is, what Pelagianism is, what various heresies are. I want them to understand them. That's teaching. I don't want them to believe them. I Mm. want them to know them so that they can refute them. And so that means I want to preach scripture to them. I want them to love the gospel, but I also want to teach them Augustine, Athanasius, Calvin, Edwards, Luther, and so on. And what I love doing when I teach, let's take Augustine, is I love letting students spot how you read one sentence of Augustine and you could feel that's the wisest thing I've ever heard anyone (laughs) say outside scripture. And the next sentence you can think, I'm not even sure this guy's a Christian. And to to read guys like that, it builds discernment. And that's what we need to be able to say, yes, there are great things to learn in an Augustine and a Luther, but 
that doesn't mean that they're perfect. Just as in someone who's really not a hero, there can still be things to learn. And yeah. so you, you, discernment means growing in the ability to be able to take the gold and sift out the dross, which there will be in everyone. Mm. That's such a such a good answer, such a wise answer. But I think it also can be, if we're honest, unsatisfying because that process of growing in discernment, it isn't always black and white. It's not like as easy as just exactly. tell me what's what I can take and what I can't. Yes. We have to trust God for that. We have to talk with each other. And that takes time. Yes, exactly. So most evangelicals also embrace some kind of doctrine of inerrancy, uh, this belief that Scripture is without error. And yet it seems like that traditional doctrine has been questioned of late. It, mm. It's been questioned many times over the years, but uh, even from within the ranks of evangelicalism, it seems like it's more up for debate than it has been in the past. How central is the doctrine of inerrancy to evangelicalism? Well, it is it is foundational for evangelicalism. We don't have to call it inerrancy. I think that the label um, is not what's significant. It's the truth that God's word is totally trustworthy in every word and in all its parts. And this is not just an evangelical modern concern. That's sometimes been the criticism. Right. That this is some modern rationalist thing that was being cooked up sometimes so that on the basis of this human doctrine, we can therefore have confidence in Scripture. Yeah, a lot of people want to separate inerrancy from Scripture's authority or inspiration. Right. They would say they don't have to go together like evangelicals often want to stick Absolutely. them Absolutely. So while... While it is the case historically that a belief in the total trustworthiness and supremacy of Scripture go far back into the depths of church history, and you see theologians from the early church articulating and defending these truths, it's not just a modern thing. The reason evangelicals hold to them is not because of its historical pedigree, though that's nice to see, but because this is Jesus' view of Scripture, that Jesus very clearly talked about how when, for example, Moses speaks, God speaks, and how the word of God cannot be broken. It must be fulfilled. Have you not read what the law says? And so just as... The perfection of Christ means the perfection of his work. The perfection of God's being means the perfection of his word. It is because when God speaks his word, his word reflects who he is. And because he is totally trustworthy, when he speaks what he... Um, this is the doctrine of inspiration, but it's it's really uh, expiration about God breathing out his word. His word conveys his own trustworthiness. And it's because of Jesus' view of Scripture that we hold to this. Mm, yeah. Well, Mike, maybe as a last question, you note that, quote, there is something about evangelicalism that can make it a fertile soil for pride. And yet you then go on to argue that the heart of evangelical integrity is humility. 
So why do you say both of those things? I, I say it can be a fertile soil for pride for like two reasons. One is we're people of the book and knowledge so quickly, so quickly just puffs us up. Mm. But also we want to be faithful to scripture and that can so quickly lead to competition who's more faithful. And so what I'm actually seeking to do is not be faithful, but to be more orthodox than anyone else. So right. it's it's the study and the orthodoxy can be fuel for pride. But the nature of the gospel means that evangelicalism should be characterized by humility. Because what is the gospel? But it is God speaking out his word so that we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so seeing the glory of God in the gospel means we should find ourselves convicted of our sinfulness, aware of our mere createdness, and more impressed by Jesus in his glory than we are, are by ourselves. Mm. And so if we're not humbled by the gospel, we're not reacting to the gospel rightly. And therefore at the heart, I think of, and this is going to be essential for any unity we're going to get in the gospel, is humility. We're never gonna have unity if we're power broking, if we're playing power politics. And so the kind of unity, the anti-tribalism, the brotherly love we want and need that will adorn the gospel in our day will be found through a lifting up of Jesus Christ so that we are humbled and we find ourselves more thrilled, more delighted with him than we are with ourselves and therefore we can give up our little tribal empires and our little cultural ways for the sake of Jesus' glory. Mm. What a great word to end on. Mike, thank you so much for uh, helping us to understand a little bit better uh, this this thing that we call evangelicalism and the gospel itself. Uh, we appreciate it. Thank you. Great to be with you, Matt. That was Mike Reeves on Evangelicalism as a Movement. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Gospel People, A Call for Evangelical Integrity. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.